What's up, everybody? Welcome to the second full episode of the Thrive and Learn podcast. If this is your first listen, welcome. If you are listening for the second time, welcome back and thanks for coming back. I'm so excited for our guest today. We're calling this a holiday special. Um, So we'll get into our interview with my good friend Leah Walker in a minute. But first, I wanted to start the two segments that I promised we would have at the top of each episode. Uh, The first being a policy and advocacy update. Unfortunately, I'm not coming to you with great news about COVID relief. Uh, Those negotiations are still happening in Congress, but luckily we can at least add some tools to our toolbox thanks to some really amazing work being done at NACI, uh, the National Association for the Education of Young Children, our parent organization. Uh, so what we can report out is that we have new survey data that will help us make the case for childcare investments. Um, unfortunately, the information that was gathered during the survey is not good. The situation is dire, um, but we're going to link on our website uh, some information about the survey that was recently released. If you are a listener that participated in that survey, thank you so much for telling your story. I maintain that story gathering is an extremely important part to advocacy, and you may think your personal experience you know, isn't going to really move anybody, but the truth is it will. So included in this survey are data for 29 states and more than a dozen quotes from early childhood educators working in childcare programs across the country. So not only will this help make the case for federal investment in childcare, you'll be able to use your state level data during your state negotiations and in your state advocacy. Huge thank you to the public policy team at NACI. They are doing amazing work and we're so, so appreciative. Again, I'm going to link all the information about the survey on our website so you can use this data, these sample tweets. Uh, There's a consolidated toolkit. We really need to amplify these stories of the providers working on the front lines during the pandemic. Second, I want to encourage you to visit the website stateofchildcare.org. This website will serve as an overview of what the Child Care and Development Block Grant funding is, why states need more of it, as well as provide news and resources on how funds are currently being accessed and used. Again, this is going to be really important information for our advocates as we advocate for more funding and also make the case for why the current investment is inadequate. I am counting down the seconds until I have a more substantial update for you about COVID relief and investments in childcare. But until then, continue using the hashtag SaveChildCare. We're going to link these resources on our website and on social. Use them. Um, And if you need any help and support, I encourage you to reach out to your local affiliate or reach out to the NACI staff down in D.C. They are wonderful resources and we're going to get this done. We're going to get this done. The second segment I wanted to have on this podcast is about self-care for the workforce. I want to think of a catchy name for it, but, but I, I haven't. I don't have one. Um, I appreciate any suggestions, but anyway... The purpose of this segment will be to share any tips, any tricks, um, any resources 
that have just been helpful to honestly my soul and my self-care. This has been a really hard year and I've really had to prioritize my mental health and I do that in a lot of ways. So first, uh, one of my favorite YouTube accounts is, um, or YouTube channels rather, is Yoga with Adrian. I've been a follower of Adrian for a few years now and I love these free yoga videos. Um, yoga is a part of my routine that has really helped me a lot with anxiety. Um, so I highly recommend it. And what I love about it is uh, she often does individual videos that target muscles and areas that are uh, commonly a little bit painful, especially when uh, you're working on your feet, which is something that you guys are doing a lot. So I love yoga with Adrienne. She is um, an amazing instructor and her resources are free. So 10 out of 10 would recommend. The second is um, also a social media type account, but they also have a blog. It's called Mind Body Green. Um, I've been a follower of them for a while too, and I just really like to fill my social media feeds with uh, positive resources about healthy eating, healthy boundaries, and um, healthy lifestyle and ways to reduce my carbon footprint, which is something that I'm also really working on. So, in this first week, maybe we can focus on, you know, moving our bodies in a way that is, you know, really mindful and also kind of just trying to be a little bit nicer to our planet. I'm going to tag both of these accounts um, on our social when we promote this episode, so I really hope you check them out. And now we are going to transition to our interview with my good friend, Leah Walker. Rambling. Do you have tea? Do we both have tea? We both have tea. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Okay. Cool. Yay. All right. We're here. Okay. okay. This is our holiday episode. So I wasn't going to do a holiday episode. I was actually going to take basically the rest of December off, but I saw the post on your classroom's Instagram account and I thought we should talk about it and I want to amplify it and I want everybody to see it because I loved it. So today we have my good friend, Leah. So Leah started working in early childhood education in 2005 when she was hired as a teacher's aide in the same New Jersey preschool she attended. I love that fact about you. <laughs> she received both her BA in early childhood education and her master's of education from Rowan University. She now works in the dual role of director and lead teacher for Rowan's on-campus early learning center. Welcome, Leah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so oh excited goodness. to talk about this. This is my little brainchild that's been coming around for a few years, so. I love that. And I'm so glad we get to amplify it for you. So, but I did want to like give the little plug about how we met because I, yeah. I like to say that you're like one of my favorite member benefits of my NACI membership. <laughs> so I, so I want to like take it back to how we met a few years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I actually say I highlight our friendship a lot when I'm talking to my college students about why NACI has been so beneficial for me. I said, I now have colleagues in Rhode Island, one of them who I talk to frequently, we text, we're, we've um, become very good friends through this. And uh, yeah, I think I love it. Member benefit is definitely where I'm going to go, what I'm going to say from now on. Oh my God. So we actually, what brought us together is NACI's Young Professional Advisory Council, which was created to infuse the perspective of young early childhood professionals into NACI's work. And that I think was like 2017 and 
more on this soon, Halia. We're going to have more updates in 2021 about our work with um, about what direction the Young Professionals Advisory Committee Council took. It's going to be really great. It's going to be great. The other thing that we're doing that I wanted to highlight is you started a book club. Can you tell us, because it's something that we both have been really invested in this year and pandemic time is a good time to do these things, uh, but it was also the right moment in this country. So can you talk a little bit about the book club that you started that I joined? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been trying my best to work on becoming an anti-racist for several years now. And I was feeling really, really stressed back in June Mm -hmm. and I couldn't join any of the protests because of work. And I just, I needed to do something actionable that wasn't just donating. I said, what can I do? And I was talking to my cousin, who's one of my best friends about this. She was in the same boat and we decided let's put together a little learning community. So we picked a book, we picked White Fragility and we put it out on our social media to say anybody who is interested in doing a little work, let's get together and talk. And it took off. I modeled it after a book club that I do here at Rowan. And it's become a phenomenal group of a small group of women that didn't really know each other beforehand. And um, we've really been learning and growing together and we're getting ready to start our second book. So I'm very excited. I'm so excited about our second book. We're reading The Color of Law. And I believe in us because we always find an early childhood intersection. I think it's just like such an important perspective. So I don't know, maybe we'll talk again once we finish another book. I'd love to talk about book club. I think that it's really doable. And I think that more folks just give it a go in their own time. You know, we, we tend to leave school and we either have to do our um, 10 hours of professional development that is required by licensing, or if you're in education at least, but very few of us continue really intentionally learning once they leave school. It's so true. I I just feel like a perpetual student in this way. And it's part of the reason why I wanted to do this episode with you, because I remember going to school and like, I mean, granted, I went to religious school, but I, um, was raised in a very, very small community where I really only talked about Christmas. And I feel like as a child, like the lessons about different holiday traditions and different cultures was never instilled in me. And I think that you're doing really great work with your littles too, like not just, you know, your colleagues. So I wanted to really highlight this because I think they're important conversations. So yeah, we're going to get into some holiday business. Uh, So you actually start conversations about the holidays more broadly at the beginning of the school year. So how do you lay the foundation for navigating holiday excitement in September? A lot of what I do when it comes to the holidays is I focus on traditions Uh, rather than get into any of the religious part of it. And, you know, this group is, this age group is in a stage of development where they are rather egocentric, egotistical, right? So I have a few kind of overarching activities and approaches that I practice in the classroom to continually introduce both our differences and our common ground. I think that that's the best place to start. Um, Mm -hmm. Children need to learn that we have things about us that are the same and things about us that are different and it's okay. And that's just the way it is. And in my classroom in particularly, my demographics tend to be fairly homogenous. So I have to be really intentional about introducing the differences that uh, we as humans have. So back in September, I used the opportunity of children getting to know each other 
through a lot of questions like, what's your family structure like? What's your favorite color, pizza topping, you know? And we, and I help them to draw the comparisons. You and you have the same favorite pizza topping, but you and you don't. Or so-and-so's family has two houses and, you know, so-and-so lives with their grandparents. And it's just this way of kind of very, in a very familiar way, introducing them to the different lifestyles that we can live. Um, you know, other little things that I might do, we're not a bilingual classroom, but I try to introduce the concept that the words we speak in our room are not the same sounds that you'll hear all over the words by world by introducing basic vocabulary or singing a multi-language hello song. And then, you know, if we're really talking holidays, the excitement about the holidays tends to ramp up about halfway through October with the approach of Halloween. <laughs> uh, and right after Halloween, they notice that Thanksgiving's coming up. And in my classroom in particular, Christmas is the big one, right? Mm -hmm. So another little thing that I do, we know that words matter. So I try really hard to say things like, if you celebrate or if they celebrate, right? Just not we celebrate or... Um, I try not to make it a given that everybody celebrates any particular holiday. Uh, and again, I focus really on traditions. So some of the major traditions that we have, um, most major holidays, families get together and there's a large meal, especially in December holidays. Uh, there's a common theme around lights, right? Christmas lights, candles, uh, fireworks at New Year's Eve, there's this idea of light. And so we talk about, we focus on what you do and how you celebrate it, not necessarily why. I love the sense of community that this strategy creates. So how do you involve your families in these conversations? When families are entering my center, I always try to encourage them to share stories and information with us and keep that open line of communication. We have a couple different communication tools that allow them to message us, not just email. At the beginning of the year, as they're enrolling, they fill out an information form, which lets us know what holidays the children celebrate, any languages spoken at home. Other times I will just ask them. This year particularly, um, I messaged all the families asking them to share their favorite winter holiday traditions. And I'll, not everybody messaged back, you know, that's the name of the game for anybody who's in this <laughs> business. Yeah, yeah. Um, but my students are going to make drawings or paintings. I haven't figured out exactly how we're going to represent that yet of those traditions. And then we'll use them to talk about it or maybe make a book. Um, we haven't fully developed that project, but I like to do a lot of things with them. So we'll see where it goes. Um, and then, you know, we'll compare them to each other and also the books that we're reading about December holidays. So if a lot of them are getting together on Christmas Eve, we read a great book about what Christmas Eve looks like in um, Guatemala. Or, you know, if it's a feast, we maybe will bring out our Hanukkah book and look at the family all getting together for their Hanukkah feast, things like that. Oh, you're going to have to give me a book list. Oh, sure. Yeah, I would love to post that too. You kind of, you alluded to this already, but yeah. your classroom often is mostly celebrating Christmas. Um, so let's talk about Christmas a little bit. You have yeah. a list of do's and don'ts for handling conversations about Christmas. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm going to read them off and I, hopefully you can elaborate a little bit about yeah. how you implement that and how you talk to kids about it. Absolutely. Yeah. This was actually the Instagram post that you were um, referring to where I specifically, these all specifically revolve around Santa. Um, so the first one is do tell children that Santa was invited uh, to your house by your grownups, which sidebar, I just love that people are using your grownups. Yes. Thank you for noticing the term your grownups. I started using that several years ago 
when um, I had a student who was being raised by his uncle and his grandmother. And then it, it slowly has picked up in our field and in parenting in general. There are just so many children who aren't being raised by their parents that it's just an easy, inclusive way to just change, again, language matters, to just change a quick term that we use and make all children feel included. So this particular kind of Santa rule of thumb actually started from a conversation about toy drives I have with my students several years ago and why the children needed those toys when why can't they just ask Santa? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna call this out just in case because I'm very new to editing. <laughs> Leah, Leah got a quarantine puppy. So yeah. I love that for you, <laughs> but she's also a guest on this podcast yes. which is pretty neat Eloise um I'm doing my best to keep her occupied right now through chew toys and antler peanut butter whatever I can do but um she's made any sort of virtual from home meeting uh an extra given me an extra challenge so. <laughs> yes that's a great idea just in case we can't edit out all of ourselves <laughs> I love her though she's so great <laughs> um so yeah, so the children asked, why can't they just ask Santa for these toys? Why are we donating our old toys, buying new toys? Um, and then it kind of got solidified over the years as an accepted reason for why Santa's don't come to, why Santa comes to some children's house and not other children's houses, um, and especially the children who don't celebrate mm -hmm. Christmas. So I never say you have to believe in Santa or his magic because I read, a, I read a story once about a child who believed wholeheartedly in Santa, but he never came. And that story just broke my heart. It was just an internet story, so it totally could have been clickbait, but it stuck with me. And, you know, I was imagining one of my little boys that year um, believing wholeheartedly in Santa. If I believe in Santa, even though my family doesn't celebrate Christmas, maybe Santa will come, you know? And so the idea that Santa has to be invited by your grownups just it, it kind of it's an acceptable reason for the children and we we can use that we tie that into like stranger danger or things like that too and um and you know if you don't celebrate christmas you're not going to invite santa to your house the grown-ups aren't going to want to invite santa so it just became a really good acceptable reason to all children without losing any of the magic yeah so second you have don't use santa is watching as a threat for inducing good behavior Yes, absolutely. So, um, I mean, this harkens back to just plain old developmentally appropriate positive behavior guideline basics, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if we even just put aside that this threat doesn't help you achieve the desired behavior that you're looking for, or if we put aside the difference between punishment and consequences and how and when you should implement them, uh, you know, those, that's a whole other podcast there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A standard rule of thumb when we're talking about positive behavior is that you just never try to get children to do something with a threat you're not willing to follow through with. Mm -hmm. And so unless you're actually willing to uninvite Santa from coming to your house Christmas morning, don't use that as a threat. I, and I can tell you, I have had at least four children over the last couple years come back after winter break and say something along the lines of, I was bad and Santa still came. I had another student uh, whisper to one of his friends, you don't have to listen to Miss Leah. You don't have to be good. Santa will still come. And um, that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> right? So you know, I don't think I actually have to like spell out what this means for the credibility of parents and teachers uh, when children start putting together that um, threats are meaningless, right? Like these yeah. consequences that we're, we're threatening are pretty meaningless. So 
yes, unless you're actually prepared to not have Santa come, I highly recommend um, avoiding that yeah. conversation. So, so many of these like recognize how savvy kids this age are. And I, I mean, I, I love that about them, but like they're, they're going to catch on and they're going to, they're going to figure out your shtick if you have one. <laughs> I just, I mean, I love that about them. So it makes, it makes um, our language all the more important because the other one you have, this was one of the loopholes that I found when I was a little kid, <laughs> you know? Um, so do acknowledge that sometimes grown-ups dress like Santa. Yes. So um, again, these all just kind of stem from conversations that I had with the kids. And I, um, I'll never forget this one student who was like, I went to the mall and saw Santa, but it was different than the one at the train, right? And so I was like, ooh. And then he started like warning his friends that the one, uh, I forget where they said it, but the one on the fire truck wasn't the real Santa. So I was like, okay, how do I how do I come up with a way to uh, approach these uh, very acutely observant four-year-olds, right? You know, some of them have pointed out like that their beard's falling off, things like that. Mm -hmm. So the first reason Santa doesn't always look the same is really simple. He's magic. He just likes to look different sometimes because he can, and it makes different children feel more comfortable or is surprising, right? Yeah, yeah. Magic. So that's, again, for a four-year-old, a pretty easy one to do. But again, when like their beard is falling off, <laughs> <laughs> or they recognize that it's Uncle Bob behind the, you know, hat under the hat. I tell them that sometimes grownups just love Santa so much that they dress up like him, just the same way that Jill dressed up for like, Elsa for Halloween because she loves Elsa. Um, but again, to um, kind of keep the magic going, I do always assure the kids that the that these grownups who are playing dress up do know the real Santa and will tell him everything. I think it's important for them to understand that not all Santas are the real Santa. Mm -hmm. um, just again, if we're talking about like stranger danger and people maybe using that as they need to know that they can like say no to Santa if Santa's being inappropriate, which you yeah. hope never happens, but it could. So your next slide said, um, don't only give children presents from Santa. Yeah, so this one's been trending on social media for a while, too, and it's, mm. like, my sincerest hope that this becomes standard practice in all families, but again, this started out of a classroom discussion, that same classroom discussion about toy drives and the kids who don't get everything they ask for for Christmas, and my explanation to them is that while Santa and the elves are magical, they can't make all the toys for all the kids that they, all the toys that all the kids ask for. It's just not possible, even with magic. So your grownups buys the rest. So some of your parents' presents come from Santa, some come from grownups. And I don't always force this conversation. I want it to come really naturally with the kids, but um, when it does come up, you know, I make it, it's important to talk about that toys cost money, that grownups have to earn money, and that the reason that toy drives are important is because sometimes grownups only have enough money to buy food instead of toys mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, and also, because this holiday tends to be really focused on getting, right, yeah. I use this as an opportunity to talk about what the kids will be giving to others, right? Since even though it's exciting to get presents, Christmas is really about giving them. So we talk about, you know, who's giving what. Uh, and when I first told my mom about how I always remember that the big gifts came from her and my dad, she was like, yeah. I worked hard to make Christmas special for you kids. No way Santa was taking all the credit. Yeah. And it's also, um, I've read a lot about how parents choose to give gifts like tech 
or, or things that have responsibility attached to them from their parents. And as opposed to, um, Santa Claus, it really instills kind of the responsibility aspect of it too, because there, there's something more about, um, it wasn't created by magic. Your right. mom and daddy worked hard and they were thoughtful for you. It wasn't just something that you asked for. So yeah. So there's a, a bigger sense of ownership when, I feel like if something's created by magic, who cares? Santos, elves can just make it again. You know, I added a little bonus slide about elves on shelves. Oh yeah. And, um, a, you know, one of my children's favorite morning meeting conversations is to tell us about what their elf did the night before. I'm sure that that's pretty common for a lot of preschool teachers right now to navigate. And, um, uh, it was hard for a lot of my children to understand why one family had an elf and another one didn't, especially if everybody's celebrating Christmas. And um, the way I use that is that a lot of these elves make big messes. They can be really mischievous. Mm -hmm. uh, and some, does your mommy want a big mess in your house? And, you know, they're usually like, no, I said, no. And then maybe I'll reference a specific thing that somebody else's did. I was like, they pulled toilet paper all over. Does your mommy want toilet paper all over? You know, and um, it's just a really, um, again, so an elf has to be invited by your grownups. And to help the children relate more, I'll say something like, I didn't have an elf growing up. My mommy was afraid that our cat would eat it or something, you know, like some kind of a feasible excuse so that they're not angry at their parents and go home and demand one or anything like that. But yeah, I don't know if I'm just like late to this party. I think that little guy is really, really weird. I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> so I was actually reading up on him a little bit and kind of what that serve. I get like a surveillance vibe from it. I'm not going to lie. Am I on an Island here? Am I a Scrooge? You can tell me. <laughs> no, I don't think you're a Scrooge. Um, I think it's to be honest on so my first reaction to Elf on the Shelf when it started becoming, you know, when it blew up into the phenomenon that it is today was like, man, what one more thing for parents to have to navigate and do. And mm -hmm. You know, it's like we already ask so much and with holidays, parties, any sort of celebration now, even play dates have to be totally scheduled, right? So yeah. that was kind of my first thought on it. But honestly, the children are so amused by it that they're laughing all day about the antics of their elf. I'm also just like suspicious and skeptical all the time. Yeah. So it was just like very like much my jam. Um, yeah, I did. I found this article. Um, it's by Laura Pinto and Selena Nemorin um, from a publication called Policy Alternatives. It's actually in Canada. Um, and I was like, why are policy people writing about the elf on the shelf? And they have this really interesting take. The article is called Who's the Boss? The Elf on the Shelf and the Normalization of Surveillance. And what they are saying, again, they're, they're like social scientists. So I was like, what, why, why? Um, so what they're saying is basically that the elf on the shelf is promoting an acceptance of surveillance. It basically makes children okay with always having eyes on them and how a negative impact of that could be on a broader term. They also become okay with surveillance of other kinds. So they actually compared it to the sociological concept of a panopticon, which is a type of prison. And I was like, 
This is a hot take, so I'm going to keep reading. I thought this was something else. So a panopticon is basically a type of prison where guards are stationed in the center of the structure, and then um, the prisoners have cells in a circular um, type shape around that central guard so that they're kind of always being watched. And it's been like studied a lot as like kind of like what type of effect that has. And these ladies are comparing that little elf to like a step one of, of um, this type of like surveillance. So do you think that they are Scrooges? I don't know if they're Scrooges, but you know, when you first introduced me to this article, my first thought was what's the difference between that and Santa's always watching, oh God, right? Yeah. Like they've kind of already been, you know, when I was little, I thought, Santa had like a crystal ball or a magic window or a mirror that he could just like tune in whenever he wanted. And like, you know, I, I maybe it was a movie that gave it to me, but like, if I was bad, it automatically went on his list and all the things I did, you know, so like, I thought there was already this magical element of Santa watching me yeah, all the time anyway. So I don't really see the full difference, like to target the elf. If we're going to talk about it, let's talk about how just the threat of Santa and the watching elves that it, that this threat that presents is like that children are learning to behave for extrinsic motivators in general rather than intrinsic right yeah we're learning to be i and you know i, I haven't we want children to be good because they want to be good right? yeah. <laughs> and to do the right thing because they know what the right thing is not just because they're fearful of a consequence so again going back to this idea of um focusing on the desired behavior when we're talking about children's behavior and things like that so um, but I can see what they're kind of saying in, in this idea, you know, teachers are always watching when they're in the classroom too. So, um, are we, are they basically just saying that surveillance in general leads us to act a certain way because we're expected to, um, and if that's the case, then that's just kind of like how society forms in general, that we've developed these behavioral norms because people are watching and, you know, we learn. Yeah. So I I wouldn't say it's a Scrooge. I say it's interesting and it's something to think about, you know, but if we really want to talk about that too, we can talk about how all of them have a robot in their house right now that responds to voice and is listening all the time. And that know, is also a whole other podcast, my friend. That is an entire, oh, oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, one of the ways that I would say that we as teachers and educators could um, kind of like address this is I encourage my students to ask me why when I ask them to do something. I don't bristle at it. I try never to say because I said so. I try to avoid that all the time. So if I say no or I need to direct or I talk about a rule or need to enforce it or um, a consequence needs to happen, um, we talk about why. You know, I will I will tell them like, yeah, that looked like so much fun when you were running on the table, but that table's not meant to hold you. What's gonna happen if you slip off of it and fall on the floor? You know, and like I just always want my students to understand why they're being asked to do something. Mm -hmm. I and I have changed a schedule, I have changed a rule. If they can give me a reason or they can convince me that it's not a good rule, I am happy to but they have to convince me. They have to tell me they have to have a good reason, you know, and we have to work it out and communicate. This has been 
this has been really, really helpful. And I hope that more, more teachers are thinking about holidays from this kind of like inclusive perspective. And I think you're starting at such a great place, which is, which is just like recognizing the community in your own classroom and going from there, because really it's, it's such a foundational concept to build community and have interpersonal relationships with children. And it, it just creates an environment where children are more likely to respect each other. So that's all. my goal. Yeah. Everything is local, you know? So, you know, I do want to say, um, just before we sign off, I just, I do want to say that there are, um, and, you know, I do want to say, you know, before we say goodbye, um, that there are a lot of programs and folks in the field who would strongly suggest staying away from holidays altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I totally agree that teaching to the holidays and holidays, you know, for the sake of holidays, they're a really weak theme. Yeah. Um, they're not deep. They're not, you know, interests are inquiry based, but, um, you know, if we also want to be responsive to children's, uh, interests, the holidays are what they're usually talking about in December, especially Christmas. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in my classroom, these kinds of conversations are not what we're doing for 100% of December. It's not what we're focused on. Um, I just take these approaches specifically about Santa and use them as my guiding rules of thumb for keeping the magic alive. Right. So, Mm -hmm. and to just be able to recognize that even within a shared holiday, we have different traditions and do different things. I love that. And that was such a great place to end too. I really, I really admire what you're creating in your classroom and I hope that listening to this can replicate that. Thank you. Yeah, it's fun. That, and that's kind of where that whole post came from. It's been my brainchild, all these ideas that I've had for a while on just how to keep that magic alive. Well, Santa's a mythical creature who's very present in our homes. For a, yeah, for yeah. When I was studying, um, like back in my undergrad, I was definitely um, of that mind as well. And like part of programs that really kept um, holiday conversations kind of like out of the lexicon generally. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm not about like everything we do in December. If when you teach into the holidays, you're tending to do, be doing a lot of teacher and adult driven activities and things like that. And that's not really our approach in general. Yeah. So, so these guidelines were more just a way and, you know, I share them with my whole staff and it's just a way that we can be very careful about addressing all these kinds of like differences and keep not ruin Santa for anybody. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming on, Leah. Happy holidays. Anytime. I loved this. This was fun. Yeah. Well, definitely we're, we're going to have some great updates in 2021 that I think that we should definitely talk about on here. There's so much happening. Yes. <laughs> Happy holidays, everybody.